So, so Alan uh, comes to us uh, from Berlin, where he's been living for his hometown, where he's been living for the last few years. But prior to this, he spent 30 years in San Francisco and uh, was a student of uh, Christine uh, Lane Hurt, uh, San Francisco Zen Center, and um, where he was also a guest teacher for two years at the San Francisco LGBTQ Sangha. Um, and uh, uh, it was a combination of a Zen and insight meditation group. Um, he's actually uh, an official member of the um, Bear Mountain Zen Center in Belfast, Ireland. He zooms in from Berlin to Belfast uh, each day. He's an author and a writer, and he's going to be talking to us today about his second book, which which is uh, based, I've heard, on a true story and loosely based on Dogen Zenji's Genjo Kawa. So we, we uh, look forward to that. Um, uh, he did an India trip with uh, Kokyo and Shoho a few years ago, and, and Yara was on that trip. <laughs> and uh, so he knows he knows our he knows our sangha well. And he also is an amateur figure skater. And uh, he's on his way to the gay games in Guadalajara. Guadalajara. A uh, uh, hotbed of uh, winter sports. <laughs> and where were you and your husband will be? Uh, no, 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 just a skating partner. Your partner. So we wish you luck. Thank you. We Thank you. you. We'll be watching it on uh, <laughs> CNN. <laughs> Someplace. So, so welcome. I'm really glad you could, you could be here today and uh, speak with the group. And, uh, Okay, great. Well, thank you. Um, it's an honor to be here. Um, an honor to see Yara again. It's been a long time since our, our pilgrimage. And um, it's actually appropriate because this book um, is in a way about a pilgrimage. And in the, so it's, um, it's called Make the Dark Night Shine. And I'm going to read you a little bit and then I'll kind of talk about both have why it was inspired, but then talk about the Genjo Koan, because it's kind of one of my favorite things. Um, and, and you'll learn a little bit more, but it's the um, dedication is to Nina, your love and activism reside deep in my bones. And then the epigram in the beginning is something I think this group probably knows uh, or has, has heard this before, um, it's uh, a koan from the Book of Serenity, Case 20. Dijon asked Fayan, where are you going? Fayan said, around on a pilgrimage. Dijon asked, what is the purpose of the pilgrimage? Fayan replied, I don't know. Dijon said, not knowing is most intimate. And it's the first time I ever heard that uh, Paul, Zauer, uh, Paul Howard, the Zen Center, talk about that. And that phrase, not knowing is most intimate, has just followed my life ever since then. 
Um, and so in a way, this book is about not knowing and how intimate not knowing is in our lives. Uh, it's actually divided up into three sections. The first section is called pilgrimage. The second section is purpose of a pilgrimage. And the third is not knowing is most intimate. So I'm gonna read you the uh, first um, uh, chapter and all the chapter heads come from the Genjo Koan itself. And so this one, the chapter title is, when you return to where you are, it will be clear. Another long night begins. And again, my thoughts turn to you, my daughter, my dear Nina. Not that you know I am here and with little likelihood that you know much about me. While unknowingness has stopped me before, I am compelled by urgency to share my story before it disappears into the plumes of smoke enveloping London. For that reason, I have decided to write what I can remember, what I imagine remembering, and what sometimes I would have liked to remember. Five nights ago, as the German bombs pummeled this block, I thought it might be my last night on earth. The adjacent building in which I used to glimpse families through the bars of my window was destroyed in an explosion preceded by the high-pitched squeal of a bomb descending, our only warning of an impending destruction. My wall shook from the impact as plaster and dust fell everywhere. With flames rising next door, I was still locked in my room. My guards were gone for the evening. I had no possible escape. Fortunately for me, the fire burned itself out rather than spreading. In time, the cries and noise of blazing timbers and collapsing walls subsided. Given what I've just experienced, my life most likely will end far from my home if I still believe in such a notion as home. The details are unclear, yet with utter certainty, I acknowledge that my life will end, as does all human life. My best guess is that the bombs reverberating through these walls with increasing ferocity will finally reach me. Here in Clapham, the hail of bombs instantly reduces buildings to their original components, stone, wood, iron, plaster, while fires burn out of control until in the morning light, fire squads can safely emerge to put out the last embers. I remain curious about how death will feel when it comes having already accepted this human fate 15 years ago when I entered a Heiji monastery, I don't hang on to the delusion of life evermore. If there's something to know about what follows death, the secret will be revealed then, just as each breath we take presents the next. Yet my dear, this perspective does not prevent fear from rising up, especially worrying that death in these circumstances might be painful. I witnessed the torment of the earth heaving in Japan and the subsequent destruction of the place where I was born and spent my childhood. However, those memories do not prepare me for my extinction by these bombs. Even with the global war that is raining terror on cities and the countryside, most people still hold to the belief that their lives will end peacefully, surrounded by those that love them. Perhaps writing to you will aid me in preparing for the unpreparable. We make up stories which we call our life. I have spent years accumulating stories before letting them go. My many teachers along the way have encouraged me in such a practice. I preciously hold on to memories, yet I have learned that even the most important events are ultimately inconsequential. Right now, your story, 
our story is the last one I have to tell. The one to which I still cling, containing both hope and regret, sitting deep within my bones, waiting for a joyful resolution that appears ever more remote. I can only let myself picture a future time and venue when you will read these words. This hope pushes fear aside, allowing me a presence and purpose in life. So my Nina, the daughter I have never embraced, the daughter whose voice exists in my imagination, the daughter whose presence has been a dream, I hope to give you my last story. If you receive this letter once the war is finished, you certainly will be older than your current 17 years. For this reason, I am addressing this letter to an adult Nina, who like the child Nina, will remain an enigma to me. On their last day, Zen monks customarily write a verse to voice their final thoughts about living life in the midst of death. My verse will exceed the customary length, describing your beginnings, my wanderings, and what I have learned along the way. The mystery for me is that I will not know what I have to say to you until I finish writing which I considered an appropriate result amidst all that has transpired. My, I will write you a koan, a paradoxical Zen teaching story. My advice after decades of study is to approach a koan through the heart and not the mind. Let these words flow over you as an expression of my love. My foremost desire is for my writings to help fill in the blank space called father for you. What could you have possibly said when your school teachers asked them about me? He abandoned us. I know nothing of him. Yet a quick peek in the mirror should remind you of my absent influence in the shape of your eyes and the color of your hair. You must have wondered when visiting classmates, living with grandparents, aunts, and uncles, who your ancestors were, what they were like, and why they also abandoned you. As you will discover, I too harbored some of the same feelings and questions that resulted in my lifelong search for family. I know what it feels like to endure the looks of pity from well-meaning adults, which also caused me to ask, what did I do wrong? Had we lived together, I would have been there to guide you, but that was not meant to be. I hope my words here can make up for what we have missed together. At the same time, I recognize this goal is unachievable, a paradox in itself. Please forgive me if at times I sound too much like a teacher. Moreover, please forgive me if what I write about may not fit your idea of a father. As impossible as this request sounds, I hope you can suspend judgment until you read the Chronicle fully. Beginning a tale is its own koan. A beginning creates its own particular direction. The act of committing words to paper eliminates other possibilities. I could start at my birth, or the birth of my father or his father, my early time in Japan, our family circumstances, the growing military presence, foreign influences, my schoolings, all are beginnings, all are essential, all will be addressed by the end. But as I dream about you, one corner of the world comes forward. In the summer of Tasho Hati, which you would call 1919, I arrived in Constantinople, distant from everything I thought certain a place so foreign, its name no longer exists. So that's the opening of the book and it reveals a number of the themes, um, obviously Zen themes. And it's the great thing about reading, this is my third time reading to a Zen audience is, is people pick up on stuff that, that lay readers would not necessarily pick up, but that's okay. 
uh, it's okay both ways. I, I, I didn't write this for Zen people, but I also knew most Zen people would recognize things I'm talking about. And, um, and so the, the, the story, Nina is my aunt, Nina, Freiburg Uchida, who, when I went to see her when she's 91, and she said to me, Alan, you'll never guess, the kids did some research, and it looks like my father came in the United States sometime in the 1930s, and was entered in San Francisco and left in New York, where she was living, and she said, I know he was looking for me. And she had a gleam in her eye after 91 years, my father loved me. He cared about me. Um, Nina had grown up without her father. In fact, uh, and so the family story, a little back, the family story, which this book reflects, and the story, uh, our stories, our stories are not trustworthy. That's one of the things Christine Lanhart told me. It's like, our lives are not trustworthy. What we think is true is an accumulation of experience, which is an accumulation of belief. It's accumulation of all sorts of things. And so our family stories, which we all have, they all have, depending on who tells the story, there's a different story. And depending on uh, the times, what you remember, other things that have happened in the past, changes our stories all the time. And obviously this is what we're learning in Zen is that, yeah, we're sitting in this body. This body is thinking, is, is while we're meditating and we're trying not to think is thinking. This body is coming up with stuff and stories and we have stories stored, stored in our body with trauma and with other experience. Yet what, what we're experiencing is now and our interpretation of our stories is from what we're experiencing now. So everything comes from this moment, even though we think we're talking about something a long time ago. Um, so in Nina's case, this family story, the official family story is her mother was a, a Ukrainian Jewish refugee from Kharkiv in the Russian Revolution, escaped through um, Odessa. And the crazy part now is like, you understand where Kharkiv is, you know where Odessa is, it's on the Black Sea. And so you would wind up in Istanbul now in Constantinople then. She then became a cigarette girl in the nightclub. Her father was supposedly, supposedly a Japanese diplomat assigned to Constantinople after World War I in 1919, showed up at said nightclub, met the mother, and they became lovers. She was uh, in the time in the times they called her a consort. She was his consort. And they had a fabulous lifestyle, supposedly, in Constantinople. He got assigned to Paris. They had an even more fabulous lifestyle and met people like Isadora Duncan and all the cream of arts and society. And they were there for a couple of years. And in 1922, again, according to the family story, his father shows up. It's a very high-ranking high ranking diplomat in Japan and said, get rid of the white woman. You can't be seen with her. So she goes, the mother goes off to New York, expecting to live an amazing life in New York. She's on a first-class ticket on a steamship. She's with her friends that she knows from Paris. 
And one of the women says, oh, you can come with me to my place until you get ready, until you're ready for New York and get settled in. She goes, Upper East Side, New York, fabulous building. She's never seen a building like this. Seven floors with an elevator and a doorman. Walks into the, one of the most beautiful apartments she's ever seen. The woman takes her through the apartment to the kitchen, opens the door in the closet and said, this is where you're going to live because we knew you weren't one of us and you don't have anything now. And so you'll be my maid. So that was her mother's introduction to New York life. She was also one of the, I think it's 12 million immigrants from Central and Eastern Europe in New York coming in at that time. Um, so she went from one place to a completely another place. Uh, eight months later, she's in a hospital, she's pregnant. Uh, she walks in the hospital, she's a feisty woman. She walks into the hospital and they said, they kept the saying, who's the father? And she goes, I'm having the baby. The father's not having the baby. Why are you asking that question? <laughs> Wasn't exactly a great response in 1923, but she was not going to be stopped. Um, so when she had the baby, um, she asked the doctor, is it a boy or girl? And the doctor responded, this is exactly his words, it's a half-breed bastard. So she was an unmarried woman having a multiracial child in 1923. So that was Nina's entry to the world. Uh, it made uh, it, Nina, it, it made her life incredibly strong. It was, made her life incredibly difficult. Um, she looked very Asian. She was always misidentified because in New York, who knew from Japanese? and anything. So she was just always Chinese and the kids would make fun of her. She knew nothing about her family. There was no family history. And so she couldn't answer those questions. And what, but everyone expected that she was this thing. And yet she knew nothing about that thing that they thought she was. Um, eventually, she, uh, as she grew up, she became uh, an activist, a civil rights activist, anti-war activist. Um, she basically has participated in every single movement there was between the 1930s and when she died about six years ago. Uh, just before she died was the Occupy movement. She lived in a small town called Patchogue on, on Long Island, and Nina was Occupy Patchogue. Every day she would be out with her sign on the street corner alone. And she said, Alan, I have to leave at four because I can't drive at night now. So I had to be home by then. Um, but we talk, you know, we, 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 many of us, especially those who have these things on and all of us who are here take a vow to do the impossible. We take a vow to save all beings. And that's, Nina never took that vow the way we take that vow, but Nina lived that life. My life is to save all beings. My life is to make peace. My life is to bring equal rights to everyone, equal rights to, to women. Um, and so she was an amazing, amazing influence in my life. Um, and so when she, when I saw this gleam in her eye about her father looking for her, instantaneously, my, my question was like, what's the father's story? I, I, and I had a vision of the father's story. 
And so I said, Nina, I would like to write your story, this story. And she goes, Alan, men have expropriated the stories of women from the beginning of time, and I'm not about to let that happen. And then she said, okay, but I'm 91. I've tried to write. I can't do it. It's never happened. You're a good writer. And so, yes, you can do it. And immediately I said, it's going to be different. <laughs> because I already, uh, I don't really know how to write about straight men. I know how to write about queer men. And so I already, I knew there was going to be a queer guy that her father was going to be queer. Wasn't sure how it was going to work. Wasn't, going to, wasn't sure how it was going to work that this baby was born, but I knew that that's how I was going to start it. Um, so yeah, so I started writing and as I was writing, it wasn't apparent to me right away that he was going to become a priest. He was a diplomat. Things happen in his life and he was back in Japan and and, and as I said in the beginning, I never know the story until it's finished. Well, I when I write, I never know the story until it's finished. So I, I write and the story comes to me and I just keep on writing. So all of a sudden this guy is, is he's like in this small village and he, for reasons I won't explain, he's in this small village, a Zen priest kind of takes him in and says, yeah, why don't you come sit sazang with me in the morning? Oh yeah, by the way, why don't you work with me? And then, by the way, after a while, why don't you come back again tomorrow? It's kind of the way we all get into Zen. It's like, we're innocent and then we get lured in and it's like, come on back. We have other things for you to do. Uh, so uh, he becomes he becomes a, a, a Zen priest. He actually spends a, a time in Aheji. Um, and then he is asked in Aheji, um, uh, to lead, essentially lead a peace mission. Um, and so uh, that's, you know, that's the basic outlines of the story. And while he's in a Heiji putting this together, he receives a letter from the mother, which has been long, long, long delayed, saying, you have a daughter. And at that moment, and this is where, this is, again, a kind of, it's everything, it's everything. It's like at the moment, what happens? At the moment, his life completely changes. Everything that he experienced before he knew he had a daughter is now tinged with the idea he had a daughter, even though he didn't know about it. And then of course, his entire future is, I have this daughter. And so, and, and for me, this is another way that we, that, um, it's both our kind of twisted karma and it's our way that we, we experience the world is that we think that we're linear and we think that these things happen here, these things happen here, these things happen here. Yet we have these things that happen in our life that actually change the way we look at the past, that past beforehand and change them the, the future. Um, so I had, um, so that once he became a priest, then I thought, oh, the, my favorite, the Genjo Koan. So I studied the Genjo Koan uh, a couple times in classes, and um, I always approached it as poetry. And uh, um, Shawaku Okamura has an amazing book on the Genjo Koan. And realizing the Genjo Koan is called, everyone should read it. 
he's an amazing scholar and he'll take every Japanese syllable and parse that syllable for the three meanings that could possibly mean, add it all together, put it all together, and then that's his explanation of the Genjo Koan. And it's beautiful. I still, for me, it's a piece of poetry. And so this, so then I thought, okay, well, I'll I'll look at the titles and then I'll put attached titles to each chapter. So I kind of went back and forth. I did that. And then and as I was right, so once I got to the point, it would like me. So once I got to the point in the middle, he became a priest. I had to go back to the beginning because now that he's a priest, then all these titles had to start from the beginning. So I went back to that, did that. Um, but I was also, um, we we as practitioners often think, I mean, is that the Kenjo Koan is supposed to be one of our basic texts, explains about Zen Buddhism. And there's a tendency to say, it's, he wrote that Dogen wrote it for, actually Dogen would even have said he wrote it for us. He would have only written it for his priests. Um, but then, you know, we're in the United States, so we have an extended audience. My take on the Genjo Cohen also is, you know, is Dogen's writing this for everyone. So not it's not only the priests that, that use the Genjo Cohen as words in the book. So there's a sea captain that asks about the wind blowing. Uh, Alyssa, the, the mother in the book, says, do you ever think about birds flying and like where they come from and how far they go? All these, all, all the images from the Genjo Koan, uh, there's a lot of it, since it was taking place between 1919 and uh, 1943, there's a lot of sea voyage going on and, and the Genjo Koan it's, itself is influenced by Dogen's own journey to China, which was a several week trip across the Straits to get to China. So uh, it's very clear that that was, that changed his life because every, because there's so much ocean imagery in that. And so you, there's a lot of ocean imagery. There's a lot of talking about the ocean and talking about the waters and talking about the fish. Um, that was really lots of fun for me and just gave me a chance to kind of play with it. And, um, and uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm going to read the last, I'm going to do something authors never do. And I, like people, actually the last writing I did, someone screamed when I said, I'm going to do this. No, you can't do this. I'm going to read some of the last lines of the book <laughs> and I'm not going to give away any secrets, but um, the reason was, is I just recently started um, thinking about the last line of the Genjo Koan has this phrase, the wind makes fragrant the cream of the long river. Um, which again, I, I mean, how can you take that literally? I mean, it's my <laughs> first question. Um, and the, um, I'm just trying to find it right here. Um, and it's actually, it goes on, um, the nature of the wind is permanent because that the wind of Buddha's house brings forth the gold of the earth and makes fragrant the cream of the long river. You know, that I never, I mean, I, I loved, I love that, but I didn't know at all what it was. And recently, um, Tova Green, who is, um, has been reading, leading queer Dharma at Central Zen Center and um, was in Berlin recently, gave a, a Dharma talk and she talked about um, 
I think it's called Kintsugi, and which is the Japanese. So if a bowl breaks, you repair the bowl with gold inlay. So what you're you're recreating the bowl, you're bringing it back to purpose, but you're showing the fault lines. And you know we know a lot about fault lines in California. And then I just read so reading thinking about that. The fault lines of our life, we see on our face, we see in our bodies, we see in our posture, we see how we talk, we see how we breathe. That's how humans reveal our fault lines. And, and we tend to say, if we especially say fault lines, we're thinking, okay, this is bad stuff. Like, yeah, these aging lines I'm having or these scars I have or the mental scars I have. And applying this idea of kintsugi, I'm thinking those lines, those embedded lines of gold in our body that we're showing off to the world are our true selves. And this is not something, so it's, it's recognizing that our human experience is hurt, we've been hurt, we've been made happy, we've been made broken, we've all these things have happened and we reflect that in our body. We reflect that in the, our, our Kintsugi gold lines that show to everyone. So I was thinking about that, thinking about a river, a gold river uh, running through um, and, and the river is coming from a, from a source we don't know, going to, a, going to the ocean and, and in, uh, something is unfathomable in our lives in its deepness and its uh, depth. And, um, and so that the, so that this gold river is just really kind of uh, an amazing thing. So the last, the last lines are, as I write these last words, I have the package neatly waiting to be tied up when all is bleak, hope drives us to act as if the bright future were near. Puna, one of Buddha's earliest students, wrote this poem reflecting on everything she had learned. When you are as full as the moon, burst open, make the dark night shine. Nina, burst your heart open. When you do, you will feel mine beating as one with yours. Your father has always been part of you and therefore never distant from you. Your father's love has grown and multiplied in tandem with your own love. You only need to think of me and I will be beside you. I know this to be true because this is what I am doing right now. You are here, so close, so still, so dear. So the, um, so the, yeah, the, the, if I was so bold to say the purpose of my book, which I, I don't, I don't know if I will say it. The purpose of my book is to both introduce Nina and the power of her story, even though she is only an imaginary character in the book. Uh, there's one time you see Nina, but it's otherwise, uh, she's the longing in her father's mind for the entire book. Um, and 
to honor, I mean, the best thing for me in writing this book is I was able to think about my Aunt Nina every day for like the last seven years now. And it's, you know, it's just been for me so wonderful, so powerful to kind of every day call upon this icon in my life, but also to call upon the energy that she had about changing our world and believing our world could be changed no matter what. Um, a number of people said, oh, you must have been so prescient of, you know, because having a Ukrainian character and wars. Well, I'm not. I just know wars show up. Wars are happening. Wars always seem to happen in our lives. And so it's our, our response to that. Um, and I'm going to end on, on something that's happening right now is uh, in Ukraine, there is um, a small sangha in Ukraine near Odessa, and the leader, the, the priest leading the sangha, every day plants a tree. And every day, and then he tends to things in Odessa, and tends to the needs of the sangha, and tends to the reality of the war. And every day he plants a tree, knowing that there'll be a future. And that's what he makes happen. So I ask us that we all make happen what we can do in the way we can do, that we take seriously our vow to save all beings and to bring all beings to peace and happiness. Um, and at the same time that we, yeah, we just let that happen. Uh, because that's the only thing we can do. Thank you. Again, an honor to, to be here. And we have some time for some questions, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Um, we have a few minutes for questions, comments. Thank you. Um, uh, I'm not sure what my comment is. I really appreciate your weaving of the multiple stories, the reality, the, the made-up reality. I guess the story part of it, and then also your your when you said you get to think of your aunt every day for seven years, um, the act, the creative act of you doing that, is also. Like its own dharma. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, that each one of us can have access to that. Um, it's just like all the, the facets yeah. to the whole thing, including your own creative energy and work, and what that means to you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and this, and I managed, I mean, I, I, this is my belief, not all authors would say that. I mean, but I do believe that all books are about the author. <laughs> No matter what they're writing about, no matter how it's going, I'm afraid to think of what Stephen King is like, given what he writes about, but all books reflect their authors. I mean, in this particular one, I've been, to, so the book travels around the world. I've been to all the places. I spent time, um, I did a short retreat in Aheji, so I spent time there. I went to Rinzo Inn, which is Suki Roshi's family temple, spent some time there. Um, and was to all the different cities that the characters are in. And so there is that kind of reflection. Um, 
in terms of the life. And there's just the, and the way I write, as I said, is just the writing comes up and comes out through my fingers. And there's a story there that I, I was going to be there. Um, and then at the end, it takes a long time to put all that together and re-edit it and make it actually make sense. Um, but yeah, this 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 spoke to me in a lot of ways that I didn't know. I really didn't know what how it was going to speak to me. Um, but yeah, a, again, as this kind of in way of yeah re, reinterpreting Dogen and reinterpreting Genjo Kwan with out there is some actually discussion and mention of Genjo Koan in there when he's in the monastery, but most of it again is just is is you know someone reading this and then reading the Genjo Koan would say, oh get that oh hmm, oh that's where that came from. But you don't need to do that to do it because our lives are are this thing. Oh I had one more thing. The Genjo Koan is incredibly busy. I mean we think again Zen is all about sitting. Nothing is sitting in the Tianzhou Koan. The birds are moving all the time. The fish is moving all the time. The oceans are moving all the time. His observations are moving all the time. It's a busy life. And anyone who's spent time in any of the kind of Zen monasteries or Zen centers living in there, you realize how wide busy your life is when you think you think it's about meditation. And so I'm, I'm being radical enough to say, Dogen's saying life is busy. There's things that are happening. So it's how you live your life engaged is what it is. It's not how it's yes, sitting is our practice and helps us understand ourselves much better and gives us this power to do this, but our engaged practice is really what we're about. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, you started off by saying that the phrase not knowing is most intimate yeah. was the beginning of your journey. Yeah. I forget exactly what you said, but that phrase is very fascinating to me. Yeah. It's really just fascinating to contemplate what that really means. Yeah. And I have my own idea of what that phrase means, but I'm curious to hear what your what your interpretation of that phrase's meaning is. Okay. So what do you think it means? I think not knowing is most intimate because we can never really know ourselves. So that makes it the most intimate part of ourselves. Okay. Okay. That's, I like that. <laughs> I mean, there, you know, there's no, there's no, uh, uh, I, there's no definition of it, fortunately. And I also, I mean, you'll see in the book, it's three words for me. So the first word is not knowing is, is the second word, and most intimate is the third world, the third word. So taken that way, for me, it's it's the this acceptance of we don't know what's coming, but we're engaged anyway. And um, in my life, the, 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 I mean, there's many times of not knowing most intimate. One of them was during a period where my, former partner was very depressed uh, and suicidal and eventually he took it took his own life but every night we would sit 
And every night, and he was a linguist. So every night we'd sit and play Scrabble. As long as we played Scrabble, he was okay. He was happy in that moment. It kind of put him in a different world. And, and as soon as we stopped, he wasn't. And so I look back as, as that time, that time of playing Scrabble for us was the most not knowing is most intimate time of my entire life of sitting with this heaviness of what may happen, what I was afraid to ha have happen, uh, what eventually did happen, yet living, like how do I live through this moment? And so that's for me, what this is about is like, how do we take every moment and we just don't know? Yeah, we don't know. I mean, really, we just don't know even when we think we do know and not thinking we do know is the delusion. So once we get to the believing that we're not knowing and that we can't know, then that is like taking it. So that's where that brings us to this moment and just accepting this moment. That's my take. But thanks for your take. That's great. Yeah. Well, I can turn all those. <laughs> uh, I'll say a lot of Lisa, thank you. And I appreciate the meeting, um, the way they all come together. Um, I understand how almost any expression is autobiographical because of that coming from this nervous system, you can't help it. Um, and then I'll just say where I got leave into it, in fact, going into it, is when you said Berlin, Christina, Paul, and Tova. Like, oh, 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 it's like a, a baby, you know, they don't know anything, they're totally absorbed. It's just hitting, it's hitting no interference from preconception. That's why. Thank you. Oh, thank you. The weave. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I think we, recognizing the weave um, to me is, is yeah, it's phenom phenomenally key. I mean, the other one um, that I always, um, Right now, see, right now, my the problem with my memory is that my mind is is partly in German and partly in English, and so then both languages start like mixing things up, and then I forget other things. But um, but yeah, this is uh, there's a lot of talking about um, our twisted karma within the book in a positive way. I always take twisted karma as being very, as positive. It's like this is how we learn where we come from and who we are. And, and we're vowing to, to acknowledge it all. And so the more we can look, find the weave and acknowledge that's all of our parts, um, the more we are aware and able to know what's affecting us at the moment. You know, so it could be this thing that happened 20 years ago or 10 minutes ago, um, but it's that weave of like, is this, a, you know, how am I reacting to it now? And what am I bringing to it now? So I may be bringing something from 20 years to this moment now, but if I know that, then I don't have to get stuck in like, oh, it's like 20 years ago. It's like, no, this is now. And so it's a different, different experience. Can I say one thing? I can never remember where it came from, but it's that one of, uh, is it like the, the reality, the, the, the principle of moving, the, you know, 
weed is so tight that you can tag it here and everything's perfect. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for the reminder and the encouragement for all of us to remember our vow to save all the needs. And I also really like how you brought in about the um, priests in the Ukraine. And, and right now, sometimes it feels so overwhelming with all the war happening and with climate change. And it can be very depressing. But instead of going down into the depression, we can remain optimistic and and stay true to our God to save all beings. And like you said, plant a tree or just every day do something that shows, you know, that creates that hope, that, that, that promise that we are making a difference. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, I, several people have said to me, it's like, how can you write about, how can you take seriously a guy who is going on a peace mission by himself to stop the war when the war started? And I, I just I said, because he's a Zen, he's a Zen guy. He can do that. <laughs> we do that. And as, I mean, it, I'm being joking about it, but we do that all the time. And so I just want to raise that up to say, yes, that is sometimes that's the noble act that we can do. And that's what we have to do. Because I, I don't know an alternative. I guess that's the thing is once I... Once I took the vow and found out about the vow I'm taking, it's like, well, I don't have an alternative. This is just what I do. And that's also a not, that's certainly a not knowing is most intimate. So I don't know what taking that vow does, but what I do know, and this is a, another example of it, is, you know, so I, I, I wrote a book. I sit here and I can talk to people and I know that people kind of, certain things affect them but there's people who I don't know who are reading this book who are having a reaction and I'm not there and that's that's my kind of superpower um you know that's my tree planting in a way is 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 when people read this book if they start reflecting on any of the things we talk about tonight and any of the things that they might them to bring to and they don't even know me like they never met me and they will never meet me but i've affected the world and i just like oh i never i never planned on that so another not knowing i never planned to do that um and yet and yet that's that's what i'm doing so i find that really um again it's just it's just what I do. It's not something special, but it's just what I do. But it's like, oh, it also affects other people. Um, and and that's hopefully my intent. I hope and hopefully in a good way, but it could affect a negative way too. Right? That's that's what we don't know, also. Yeah. Thank you. Any last questions? We will have some, I guess I have some books I brought if anyone wants to buy one and and uh, we can talk more afterwards. Yes, yes. Thank you very much. It's been wonderful hearing about your work and the intimate connection you have with the characters. Yes, yes. But the friendship goes impossible now. I'm about to save them. 
Delusions are inexhaustible. I bow to end them. Dharma days are boundless. I bow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I bow to become them.